If you've been with us, it should be of no surprise, and you should already know where to turn. But if you are new with us, you can open up to James chapter 2. We are going through the whole book of James. We will cover it throughout the rest of our sermon series. Will will pick up next week and then Jim after that. Um, And we'll bring a conclusion to the book of James as we've covered. Um, Today we're going to dive right in. We're going to cover roughly from verse 1 to verse 7. And James chapter 2 starts with a story. And it's one of those stories, has anyone ever come to you and they've like, they ask that question like, you know, hypothetically, you know, if your wife did this, or hypothetically, if you had a kid that did this, or, you know, hypothetically, if you had a friend that did this, and you really know that they're not talking hypothetically, they're really talking about, you know, their wife or their child or their spouse, and they're trying to, like, cover it up, you know? I'm just asking for a friend, you know? Just asking for a friend, and that friend happens to be me, you know? (laughs) James chapter 2 starts off with one of those stories. He tells a story that supposedly... Um, suppose this happens. It may happen, but most likely it was a true story that James had heard and that he knew about and he was writing to warn them about. And it was one of those stories that he was, you know, supposedly, but it was probably something that actually happened. So let's read about it um, and talk about it from then on. Starting in verse 1. My brothers, as believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ... Right? So he's writing to the church. He's writing to a group of believers. He's writing to um, people that have placed their faith and their trust in Jesus Christ. He says this, don't show favoritism. And here he goes. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring, which in Roman time, a gold ring was a symbol of royalty and wealth and success and power. Suppose a man comes wearing a gold ring and fine clothes, and a poor man in shabby clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here, you know, here's a good seat for you. You're obviously someone special. You're really important. And you get the front row. You get the best of the best. You get to sit here. And you, so, and you say to him, here's a good seat for you. But you say to the poor man, uh, you know, there's not enough room for you. Um, you know, go stand over there. Or you know what? You can sit on the dirty floor over there. Have you not discriminated amongst yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? And so James is writing a warning to the church and to the body of believers, and he starts off and says this, do not show favoritism. Another word is partiality or bias or preference. And James is writing and saying, give no preference or give no bias or give no special favor to anyone. And in this case, he writes about a happening in church where a man came in wearing fine clothes and a gold ring, and they gave him a special seat of honor, and they said, you know what, you're obviously important. You're obviously someone of success and of stature and of position. And so they give him the special seat while saying to the poor man, you know what, Um, you're not so important. Can you stand or sit somewhere else so we can make room? And I would like to say, and I would like to not say that, you know what, this doesn't apply to us because, you know, after 2,000 years, we do not show any favoritism or partiality or bias anywhere. But yeah, you guys are laughing because you know it's a lie. Um, We have TV shows that literally just follow famous people, and we watch them, you know? We got the Kardashians, we got the Real Housewives of LA, the Real Housewives of Atlanta. A while ago, we had Duck Dynasty and the Robertson and all of their rich and their fame and success. In my day, MTV Cribs where you just got to, you got to see everyone's homes and you got to see all their cars. and their, I remember Shaquille O'Neal had a 15-foot bed. I was like... <laughs> but we idolize these things and we show bias and we show preference to those things. We worship those things and we start to think, you know, that's the ideal. I got to have that. I got to have a home like that. I got a vacation like that. You know, I want that car. 
and we really show bias and partiality. Ask any of these teenagers, you walk into a high school and that guy's wearing, I can't even name him, that, the Jordan Air Maxes two special shoes. And it's like, he might be a complete change, stranger and a new kid at school, but just because he's got those shoes on, he's already elevated a factor above the kid that's wearing the shoes from Target. Am I wrong? We show bias and partiality because of wealth, because of how someone may dress. But it's not just that. We show partiality because, hey, you know, that person has tattoos, that person doesn't. Some of us are still partial or still biased to certain races, thinking that, you know, their race or their ethnicity is somehow greater than others. Some of us show partiality or bias because of age. You know, I'm old, I got more wisdom, I got more knowledge, and this person's only been following the Lord five years as opposed to 40 years, and we have all kinds of favoritism and bias. How about degrees or success or position? Oh, they got a PhD or they're a doctor. I better bow to them. They must be somehow smarter than me. They must know more than me. And we start to deflect and show favoritism and bias because, you know what, they're just, they're better, they're smarter. Or looks, you know, I wish I looked like that. I wish I looked like them, you know. They must have it all together. Their family looks, you know, their family photos are gorgeous and they vacation together and they spend all time together and we start to show bias and preference for certain things. And James is writing and says, my brothers, my believers, my body in Christ, show no favoritism, show no partiality, show no bias. And so I want to learn a few lessons from these four verses today and, um, and some things that we can look at. And the first one is this, rid yourself of any preconceived notions, ideas, thoughts that anyone is better because of the way they dress, the way that they look, their job, their position, or their degrees. Simply do not show any form of favoritism. James is writing here, and he's not making a case where he's saying that, you know, the rich, you know, it's wrong to be rich, and it's wrong to be wealthy, and the rich should really become poor, and it's better to be poor, and the rich should just give everything and sell everything and become poor. That's not what James is saying. He's not writing and saying, you know, the poor... um, you're the victims and you're just the outcast and the downcast and you know, you should just play the victim card and you should just get money from the rich. It's not what he's doing. He's not making some economical statement. He's not saying, you know, vote Republican, do this, or making some claim for communism. That's not what he's doing. What he's writing and saying is this, is that in the body of Christ and sitting here in these church pews and in this place, don't classify people by their wealth or make any distinctions based upon those things. So what if someone's wealthy? So what if someone's poor? So what if someone drives a brand new car? And so what if someone drives a car that's 20 years old? He's saying, in this body, show no partiality. Show no favoritism. Don't give any preference to those things. They shouldn't even be a filter with which you view things through. That shouldn't be the type of lens in which you look through. We live in a world and a society that very easily divides us by our class. Look at just the different neighborhoods in the surrounding area. They divide us by our job, white collar, blue collar. Look at a local high school. You have the jocks, you have the nerds, you have the drama people, you have the band people, you have the art people. And we are classified, spread out, and segregated as much as possible, you know? Well, you're this race, you're that, you're this, you're that. And James is saying, in the body of Christ, let it not be so. Don't view through lenses of, you know, you're better because of this or they're better because of that or give preference to something else. He's saying, you know what? You know what Christ looks at when he looks at the body of Christ? He doesn't go, you know, well, he's wealthier, he's nicely dressed, or he says, that's my redeemed, that's my child, that's my son, that's my daughter, I love them, I love you, and he's calling us to view view each other through that same lens. 
to love each other, to not put any conditions or filters on it. You know, well, I'll love you because you look the part and you dress the part and you sound educated and you followed Jesus for 20 years, so you know what? No. He's calling us to love each other equally and to serve each other equally and to show no bias. And the truth is, is that Jesus was our model for that, that Jesus in his ministry and Jesus in his outreach showed no distinction or no special treatment towards any group of people. We know that he called the disciples, many of them fishermen, many of them low-class working citizens. You know, if we were to choose 12 people to follow Jesus and to start the church and to plant the church, they had no education, they had no degree, they had no formal training. In fact, they were just low men on the totem pole but we know that Jesus loved and served them and chose them to be his vessels to start and plant the church. And so we know that Jesus loved and he reached out to the poor and the broken. But how many of you know that Jesus also met Zacchaeus, who was the lead tax collector, which means that he was probably wealthier than, he was the wealthiest tax collector. He was a person of wealth and stature. And guess what? Jesus shared the gospel and he shared his truth with him also. How many of you know that Nicodemus was a Pharisee and Nicodemus was an elite and he was the educated and he probably had money and success and wealth and guess what? Jesus told him how to be born again. Josephus followed Jesus. He was successful and Josephus was the one that buried Jesus and he was able to pay for the burial rites and to do all that and he was a man of wealth and stature. You see, Jesus didn't divide between, you know, gender, race, wealth, how well you dressed. He saw a need. He saw a spiritual need, and we all got that spiritual need, is that we all need Jesus, and we all need to balance, render to him. And so guess what? It doesn't matter what our position or status is. We all need him. And so in Ephesians, it says that we were bound by one spirit into one body. And so do not show favoritism, but rather model Jesus and make no distinctions among people. So point number two is that if you find yourself with preconceived notions about um, something or you have bias towards a certain um, gender, race, social status, rid yourself of it. Don't show favoritism. Point number two is this, is that Jesus is not judging by outward appearance. And we shouldn't value ourselves regarding outward appearance. How many of us... um, We don't have to admit it by a show of hands, but when someone walks in or we see someone or we meet someone, the first thing that we do is that, you know, we size them up, we look them down, see how they dress, see how they conduct themselves, you know, see how they talk, and we've already made, you know, judgments or opinions or values on them without ever having a conversation with them. We sit here within these church walls and we probably think about some things about people across the pew that we've never even had a conversation with. Well, they must be like this. Well, they drive that type of car or they moved into that neighborhood. They must be this without understanding the circumstances, the situations, or anything ever going on in their lives. We make all these opinions and things, and we value things solely based on their outward appearance. And we make judgments about them. One of my favorite verses in all of Scripture, and one of my favorite things about Jesus comes from Isaiah 53, and this is what it says about him. says, he grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. There was nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. Jesus was basic. 
There was nothing about him looking at him that said, you know what, he's got charisma, he's got character, and he just, he's a handsome man, and no one followed him because of what he appeared to be like on the outside. Yet he is still the most followed man in all of eternity and will be the most followed man, and he still attracted crowds, and people still flocked to him, and they still wanted to hear his teaching. Why? Because it wasn't what was on the outside, it was what was on the inside, and that he measured by what was going on in here. And so Jesus isn't measuring us or counting us by our outward appearance or by our flaws or by our limitations or by how well you can dress or by what tattoos you have or by what piercings you have or any of that. He's looking at the heart and he's chasing after the heart. You see, Jesus still was an influential figure and still was the most influential figure because his character and his nature and his love stood out because it flowed from what was going on inside. I was doing some just general research to look, and it's, you know that in the U.S. we spend over $16 billion a year on beauty products. Makeup, shampoo, all this, you know, acting wash, all that, $16 billion to try to dress up our outward appearance because we think that that somehow matters. I laugh about it now, but my first year ever counseling at junior high camp, I had an eighth grader. Um, Don't worry, he wasn't from this church, he was from a church in Maryland, and he was the oldest boy. And... Every time before chapel, this kid was always the last kid out of the cabin. And every time I was like, come on, come on, you know, come on, Daniel, it's time to go. Come on, Daniel, it's time to go every time. And you know what he was doing? He was making sure that he had on his uh, matching outfit and he had a pair of socks picked for each day. And then he would make sure he put on those socks and he put on his nice clean shoes that he brought. And then he would do, walk into the bathroom and uh, do his hair gel and all of that as if he was going to chapel. We were headed to chapel to impress someone. Mind you, if you haven't been there, the boys sit over here, the girls sit over here, and that's the way that it remains for the duration of chapel. So I don't know who he was trying to impress or what he was trying to impress, but I felt sad because every day he thought that what mattered was how well he looked and how well he appeared and how well he just could make himself look put together. And it was sad because he thought that's what really mattered about him. You know? And how many of us think the same things or we look at ourselves and we value ourselves on the same things, you know? That we think that is what really matters about us. In Second Samuel, or in First Samuel, um, we know that Saul was king and that um, Saul had messed up and Saul had screwed up, so God had removed his spirit from Saul and he was sending Samuel to anoint a new king. And so Samuel was to go to the house of Jesse and at the house of Jesse, out of one of his sons, God was gonna choose a new king. And so Samuel shows up in chapter 15, and he's looking out, and he sees Jesse's oldest son, I think Eliab, and he looks at him and says, oh, that must be the one that God is going to anoint king, and that is going to be the one that God must choose. He's probably looking at the firstborn. He's probably looking at a leader. He's probably looking at someone that had the physical stature of a leader, and Samuel made an outward judgment and says, that must be the guy that God is going to now anoint king. Mind you, what it said about Saul, the previous king, was that he stood a foot taller than the rest. And it actually says in the Bible that he was a handsome man. I want that, man, that's an awesome thing to go down the scripture for, right? That, he was, that I, he was a handsome man. He stood a foot above the rest. And so Samuel was looking at who the former king was, and he says, you know what? That must be the new king. God must choose, you know, after that. And God stops Samuel and says this. He says, no, no, no. For man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart And so he goes, he passes the next son, the next son, and the next son, until finally there's a young boy, David, says, you know what, that's my man, that's my boy. Why? Because God was chasing after the heart, and God was looking after the heart. And the same thing goes for us today. 
is that we got to stop limiting ourselves and stop valuing ourselves because of our outward appearances or our limitations or the things that we cannot do. Scripture is filled with people that had limitations, that had flaws, and that weren't the right fit or the right person for the job. Look at Gideon. But God, I am the smallest and the weakest in the tribe of Manasseh. So not only is my tribe the weakest, and not only is my tribe the smallest, but I'm the weakest out of them. You couldn't possibly pick a weaker man to fight back against the Midianites. What did Moses say? But God, I can't even speak. I got a stuttering problem. I can't even form words. And you want me to go to Pharaoh. You want me to go to the most powerful man. And you want me to lead the Israelites out of Egypt. And I can't even form a sentence. And we base all of these things and we look at our outward circumstances and we make all kinds of excuses. Well, Lord, I just, I don't know your word like them. Or I'm not as eloquent as them. Or, you know, I'm just not, I don't have enough knowledge about this. Or, Lord, I'm not good at talking or I'm not good at public speaking or I just can't and I can't and I can't and I can't. We have all of these things that we write ourselves off for but we need to stop for a second and remind us that it's not about us, right? Gertie has a saying that the weaker the vessel, the greater that God gets the glory, right? And so that God chose Gideon and God used Gideon in his weakness and his imperfection even in his limitations but guess what? Because God was able and God was strong enough and God was sufficient to deliver the Israelites out of, from the hands of the Midianites, and God did the same through Moses and that he used his weakness and he used his imperfections and they, he used their flaws. And despite of that, Paul writes in 2 Corinthians that it was in my weakness, it was in my weakness that I boast. Why? Because in that, I was made strong and Christ's strength was made known in me. You see, when David went down to fight Goliath, it wasn't in David, he wasn't trusting in his own physical ability. He was staring at a giant and he was still a boy. In fact, he says he didn't even take armor down Why? Because he wasn't counting on his outward appearance. He wasn't counting on his strength. He wasn't counting on his expertise and his knowledge of warfare. He knew that the Lord was going to fight his battle. And he knew that the Lord was able and he knew that the Lord was strong to deliver him and to defeat Goliath. And so James is writing. He said, don't show favoritism and don't look at your flaws and don't limit yourselves because of the things that you can or you cannot do. But know who he is and know his strength and know his power and know that he will fight your battles. And know that in your weakness, that's the very opportunity, that's the very chance to meet him and to find Christ's strength. And so don't run from it, don't flee from it, don't try to hide it. Say, you know what, I'm going to be like Paul, I'm going to boast in it because in there, that's where I meet Jesus. Point number one, don't show favoritism. Point number two, Jesus isn't looking at the outward appearance. In Corinthians, he says this, is that I take the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. Just quirk put personal testimony about myself and how that, what that verse um, means to me was that I was graduating college and I was going to head to Messiah College um, for a degree in accounting and business management and I was going to make money, you know? And I had a scholarship that would have, I would have paid, I think, seven grand a year over four years. Um, I had a scholarship to go. It was looking right. It was looking good. And then all of a sudden, God comes knocking on the door of my heart and started to give me some um, I just started to not have peace about going to college. I was like, what do you mean, God? This is all that I planned for. I only applied to one college. I got accepted. Everything's good. This was your plan. My dad comes to me one day and says, my dad actually was in a staff meeting with my youth pastor. And my youth pastor spoke up and said, this is really weird, but I feel like Ryan is supposed to hold off um, going to college for a year. And my dad said, oh, well, thank God that you said that because I've been praying that and I feel that, but I just didn't want to tell him. And they bring this to me, and I said, wow, that's really weird because that, that really speaks to what's going on in my life. 
And see, God took, and so I remember, remember graduating, and I had a teacher give me a card, and I had made my plans known at this point. I decided, you know what, I'm not going to go to college. I'm going to postpone it, and I didn't have any plans. All I was going to do was work on the family farm and pray that God would show me the path forward from there, because I didn't know. I remember getting a card from my 12th grade teacher, English teacher. She says, you know, Ryan, I had a great year with you. You were one of my bright spots, but I got to tell you that I am extremely disappointed in your decision not to go to college. And I remember reading that, and I was a little discouraged, and my dad opened up the Bible to 1 Corinthians. He says, you know what, Ryan? He says that he takes the foolish things, and he does foolish things to shame the wise. And I'm standing here in an opportunity to serve God and to work in a church. Why? Because God called me out and he took a foolish thing and made it a foolish decision. I paid more for three years of Bible college to not get a degree than I would have to get a degree. Come on. (laughs) That's foolish. (laughs) But I wouldn't trade it and I would do the same thing over again because he takes the lame, he takes the mute, he takes the weak, and he takes the feeble, and he takes the foolish things and he uses them for his glory and his purposes. And so stop looking at your things like their limits and start looking at them as opportunities to praise and to worship God. Point number three says this, is that when we show favoritism and when we show bias and we show preference, what it really does, and I always tell my youth group this, is that it tells us a lot more about ourselves than it does about them. If we go back to James chapter two, it says this. It says, have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? And James saying, when you make distinction based off of wealth and you make that judgment because this person's more valuable because of the clothes that they wear and the rings that they have, and you start to worship them because they're dressed this way, what you do is you start to become the judge. And then you start to give people the interpretation that this is what God must really want. God must want you to dress like this. You better wear a three-piece suit and you better look like this and you better drive this car. And this is success. And you start to become the judge of what is good and what is right and what is holy. And James is saying, have you not discriminated amongst yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? You see, the truth is, is that the things that we're biased towards or the things that we show favoritism towards or the things that we give preference to, what it really does is speaks to the conditions of our own hearts. It starts to show us our own idols. It starts to show us the things that we have set on the pedestal as the things that are to be achieved and the things that we need to work after and the things that we need to pursue. You know? So when we give preference to, well, they look like that, or they have that job, or that position, what really that is, is that our idol in life? That's what we think that we must achieve, that what we must attain to. Or we look at people's pictures on Instagram, and we see their family vacations, and the magnificent trips they take, and we start to worship that, and we start to want that, and we start to desire that, and that's our pedestal, that's our idol, that we think, you know, this is what life's all about, this is what really matters. In the church in James, this is what they thought was important, was having success, was having money, was having power. And it was their idol. I love a quote by Jim Carrey, a famous actor, a comedian who starred in many of movies. He says this, I wish everyone could grow up to be rich and famous and do whatever so that they could see that it is not the answer. That no matter how much fame he had, no matter how many people followed him, no matter how many people laughed at his jokes, no matter how much wealth he had, you know what, Jim Carrey, it didn't satisfy him. It didn't bring the longings and the desires of his heart to him. One commentator said this, is that the people in James, instead of worshiping the glory of Christ and the beauty of Christ, they were worshiping a gold ring. Instead of worrying about being dressed in the righteousness of Christ and displaying his nature and his glory, they were worshiping fine linens. And it speaks to what happens in Romans 1.20, right? That we worship, for we worship the created things rather than the creator. 
that we start to value the material things, and we start to pursue those things, and we start to have these ideals. I must look like this, I must be like that, I must have this degree, I must have this type of success, I must have a, hold this position in my job, and we start to worship that and desire that and run after that as if that is the thing to be achieved and that is the thing that is gonna bring us fulfillment, and that is the thing that's gonna make us content and bring satisfaction in our lives. until we become so dissatisfied, so disgruntled, and so angry, and say, God, well, you know, why can't you bless me like this, or why can't you do like that? And we look at our situations, and we're never satisfied, and it's never enough, because there's always something more to achieve. Isn't this what happens to the rich young ruler? Lord, I've done everything that you've asked. Lord, I've kept all of your commandments. I've obeyed you. I've done whatever you've asked. What else must I do to inherit the kingdom of God? Just go sell everything you have, and come back and follow me. It's the last we know of the rich young ruler. He walks away. Why? Because he couldn't let go of his possessions. He couldn't let go of what it was. Because to him, that was where he found his contentment, his peace, his satisfaction, and his joy. And he couldn't let go of his wealth to follow Jesus. Jesus says this, what does it gain a whole man, or what does it gain a man to gain the whole world, but yet lose your soul? You can have all the material possessions. You can have all the positions of power. You can have the perfect family. But if you chase after that and pursue that like it's the end goal in life, what does it do for you to profit all of that but yet in the process lose your soul? One last example. Um, in the book of Ecclesiastes, Solomon is writing at the end of his life. Um, he's probably near death and he's recapping everything that has ever happened in his life. And he opens up the chapter with some of the most famous words, meaningless, meaningless, everything is meaningless, a vanity of vanities. And he goes on to write and say, I pursued pleasure to a degree that you will never be able to pursue pleasure. I had wisdom, more wisdom than you will ever have. And we know that he had 700 wives and 300 concubines. He says, I I built palaces and I set my hand to have the most majestic buildings and all that and I set my hand to work and to folly. I had more money and success and power than you'll ever have, and you know what he says? It's all meaningless. It's all like chasing after the wind. And so he concludes in the book of, in chapter 12, he says, my last bit of advice, my last words of advice, aren't to chase wisdom, aren't to chase knowledge, aren't to chase wealth, aren't to chase pleasure. He says, remember the God of your youth and serve him because everything else is like chasing after the wind. And how many of us have been chasing after the wind and we're trying to obtain to these ideals and these things and these biases that we have and it's like chasing the wind and we're disgruntled, we're just unsatisfied, we're unhappy and we're always thinking that we're on the short end of God's hand. A lot of us want the peace that passes all understanding and we pray that a lot. Lord, give us the peace that passes all understanding and I want the peace that passes all understanding but if we don't pursue, and we want rest, you know, we want rest from the weariness and the drudginess of life and the busyness of life, and we want rest and we want peace. But guess what? If you continue chasing the wrong thing and you continue pursuing the wrong thing, you're never going to find that peace. Because in Matthew chapter 11, Jesus doesn't say, well, you know, um, get a good paying job and then you will have rest. Or build the perfect family and have obedient children and then I will give you rest. Or come to church and uh, be here on Sunday mornings, then I will give you rest. He says, no. He says, come to me. Come to me, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light, and I will give you rest. And so if you want peace and you want rest, you've got to stop pursuing and you've got to stay, start, stop chasing after things that will not deliver and that cannot deliver because you're just chasing the wind. They'll always be one step ahead of you. 
There'll always be someone that has it better than you. There'll always be someone that's got the latest technology, that's got newer shoes, that's got newer clothes, that's got a better job. And if you set yourself on that course, I call it the hamster wheel of life, you'll just keep running and running and running and not going anywhere. But if you come to him and you bring it to him, you'll find peace and you'll find rest and you'll find a yoke and a burden that is easy and light. And so as we continue on in verse five, it says, listen, my dear brothers, has God, not, has God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised those who love him? But you have insulted the poor. Is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? Are they not the ones who are slandering the noble name of him to who you belong? And he's saying, you value wealth and you value these possessions and you value you know, the success, but he says, aren't these the same people that are lording it over you and holding it over you and creating all of these problems for you? So I love what it says in verse five. Has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised to those who love him? You may not have the nicest car, You might not even have your college paid off. You might have zero things in savings, but I can rest assured this, that I want you to believe that you are rich. If you are in Christ and you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ, it doesn't matter your financial possessions, it doesn't matter the material things that you have, you are rich. Look to your neighbor, say, I'm rich. (laughs) I want you to believe that and I want to get that through, is that you're rich is that you're rich, that you have everything that is ever needed, okay? You might not get the finances that you want. You might not have it, but there is, you will always be rich because of who Christ is and what he did on the cross. James is writing, has God not chosen the poor of the world, right? And it doesn't mean that God has not ignoring the rich and that the poor have more special or more favor, but here's the truth, is that when you're poor and you're broke, you have a whole lot less to depend on and to be satisfied with or to occupy your mind or to be busy with than when you have a lot of money. What's he say? It says it's easier for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. He's not speaking out against wealth. He's not condemning wealth. Um, I've been the... We've been the blessed benefactors of people that have shared their wealth and have given it to us. Our Bible college stayed... Um, afloat because the owners of Hobby Lobbies happen to be faithful Christians that give their money and gave over $500,000 to bail Elam out of debt before, all right? So it's not, it's not speaking down against wealth, it's not condemning a wealth against wealth, but it's this, it's warning that when you have wealth and you have a lot of possessions and you have a lot of that, it very easily can occupy your time, your energy, and your focus, and it's a whole lot more to worry about and to rely on and to depend on and to look at for your satisfaction and help. But when you got nothing and you're broke, you got nowhere else to turn but to Jesus. For any of you that have been in Costa Rica with us, you know that they sit in a church that's got no walls, that it's open air, and it is stale upon stale. We complain about not having air conditioning on us this summer morning. They don't even have a breeze. But I'll tell you something. Every kid, you know what they say about them? Is that they have joy like I've never seen, and they have happiness like I've never seen. Why? Because they don't, their joy and their hope isn't in anything that is fleeting or gone or could be gone tomorrow. Their hope is in the everlasting, eternal God, and they know the riches of, riches of Christ. Right. Yeah. Honest thoughts of a pastor. 
is that if I could title my sermon anything I wanted, I would title it, You Got Jesus, Stop Complaining. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> because we look at everything that we have. We look at everything that we're lacking. We, we don't have this. We don't have this. We're always one step behind. And we always are complaining about what we don't have. And sure, I know that some of us have walked through trials and we walk through things and we walk through difficulties. But the truth is, is that we will never be without and we are never lacking and we are never poor. We're never desperate. Why? Because we have Jesus and the riches of Christ. That's right. Come on. And you are rich and you never will be rich. That he supplies all your riches. He supplies all that is needed for life and godliness in him, in Christ. And you will always have him, and he's not going away. And so you will always have riches despite the trials, despite the things that you go through. Jim shared it a couple weeks ago, right? Is that if you lack wisdom, you have a God that will give you wisdom. And that the trials and the things that you walk through, they're God's blessings and they're God's favor. And they're developing the perseverance of your faith so that you could know the riches of Christ. Ephesians 3 says this, Paul's writing, Paul who was not worthy to preach the gospel, Paul who was a murderer, Paul who was putting Christians in jail, says this, although I am less than the least of all of God's people, this grace was given to me to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. Do you know that Christ's riches are so unsearchable that you could spend your life exploring them, diving into them, studying them, and delving into them, and you will never come to the end of it. But he gives us a foretaste of what some of those riches are in chapter one. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, that he lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. He made known to us the mystery of his will. In him, we are chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything. Verse 13, and you also were included in Christ when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of salvation. Having believed, you were marked with the seal of the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit, guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession. That you are forgiven, that you are chosen, that you, God has made known to you the mystery of his will, and now he has set the Holy Spirit upon you as a seal of his promise. If those aren't riches, then guess what? You'll never find anything else because he, he is the richest of the richest, and if that can't satisfy you, and if that doesn't bring peace to your heart, then I'm sorry for you because you ain't going to find anything outside of that. There is nothing better, there is nothing more worth pursuing, that he is the end of all ends, that he is the depth of all knowledge, that he is the richest of loves. And if you heard it said that your heart will not find peace outside of Christ, it's true. So I'm going to close with um, two stories from the Bible. This verse is one of the most convicting of all verses for me that I have ever read. It comes from 2 Corinthians chapter 8. And Paul was writing about a church in Macedonia, and it says this. I'll read it to you. And now, brothers, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. Out of the most severe trial, their overflowing joy. (laughs) Those are two things that don't go to weather, right? How many of us go, you know what, God? I got a severe trial, and the next thing we say, but I got overwhelming joy. I got overflowing joy. But he says, out of their severe trial and their overflowing joy, and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. <laughs> Those things don't go together either, right? Oh, I'm, I'm, I'm impoverished, I'm poor, but I'm overflowing in generosity. But it says this, for I testify that they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability, entirely on their own, and they urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the saints. 
because they didn't look at their situations, they didn't look at what they didn't have, and they didn't look at where they were limited. It says that they had, Paul must have tried to stop them from giving. And it says that they urged and they pleaded and they desired to give and to bless. Why? Because they knew the riches of Christ. Verse nine confirms it. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that you through his poverty might be rich. He was broken and he was pierced so that way you could know the depths and the knowledge and the wealth of his riches and he can make them abundantly clear to you. And that's what my heart wants to be. Lord, I'm gonna give it all. Even in my poverty, even in my brokenness, Lord, I wanna give because I know that my riches don't come from my material possessions. They don't come from my looks or they don't come from my outward appearances. But Lord, they come because I know you and you are a rich God. The last story is um, the well-known story. Uh, there was people in the Bible coming to the temple and coming to the synagogue, and it says that the wealthy people were giving in great sums of money, and they were pouring in a great amount. And then comes an elderly widow, and she sticks in just two little coins. And Jesus says, I'll tell you the truth today, that that woman has given more than those before her. Why? because she gave everything she had. She gave all of her possessions and she gave everything. And that's how I wanna be as a church. I wanna give it all for Jesus because he's worth it. And I don't wanna hold back and I don't wanna reserve myself and I don't wanna look for more and I don't wanna have these things on a pedestal that I have to achieve in order to be happy. I wanna give it all because I know that he is worthy. Because the truth is, is if God was a respecter of persons, and God was looking at outward appearances and God was partial to certain people, he would have passed us all by. <laughs> we all wouldn't have been qualified. We all would have been out. But we know that he is no respecter of persons and we know that because he wasn't partial, I have a place in him. That's right. And so church, I want you to know today that you are rich, that you are blessed, that you are favored. And it doesn't come because of your house, doesn't come because of your car or your income or what you make, it comes because you know Jesus and he has supplied everything that you need. So as the people come to serve communion, um, as we prepare for that, let us bow our heads. Father, forgive us for where we've been um, disgruntled or unsatisfied with the things in our life, thinking that we deserve more, that we need more, that we need this, or that we have an unfair plot in land, or in this life. Because Lord, we have you, and you are sufficient, and you are enough. And so Lord, let us not count our success by the things of this world, but let it count it by knowing you, and who you are, and the things that you are doing in our lives. That we are rich, that we are blessed. Father, and you have supplied everything that we need so that we look into our trials and our temptations, we look into our struggles and our difficulties, Lord, and we say, thank you, God. Because I have you, I'm given it all. Even in my extreme trials and even in my deep poverty, Lord. I wanna be known for my rich generosity and my overflowing joy because we have the bread of life, the living water, the one who has come to give life and life abundantly.
So let it be so in our hearts, Lord, that when we're tempted and we're to look at our situations and to look at what we don't have, let us count it all joy that we know Christ and that we have relationship with the heaven, with the maker of heaven and earth, and that we know him. In Jesus' name we all said, amen.